All right, guys, my name is Mateo. Welcome back. Second video of the day. And there is a beautiful day out there, so I'm not going to rush through this, but I would like to wrap it up so I can go enjoy it. Uh, maybe do a little nature walk video. If you haven't seen those, we like to do those. But let's get to the content. Let's just dig right in, guys. And guys, remember, if you find this content to be useful, like the video, share the video, subscribe, all that stuff. Donate, whatever you want to do. Just... Help me grow the channel. Help us grow this movement. The Monero First Movement is going to be huge. This video isn't so much about Monero, though. Uh, we had a good video last video, and then before that, we talked about the growth of AI, tax, <clears throat> and its integration into blockchain, and how that kind of spells trouble, and why it is that you want to exit stage right the system, go to these Freedom Coins, which is what we like to call them, Monero, Darrow, Pirate Chain, we love them. And so, uh, yeah, we talked about that. We talked about banks starting to buy Monero. Grayscale's looking into it, too. So we got good things over the horizon. But today, in this particular video, I wanted to talk about the dollar. I wanted to talk about everything that's going on. Because I'm not going to give my, you know, two cents, three cents on what's going on in Afghanistan. Everyone's got their own perspective. It's pretty universally bad, but yeah, we knew this was going to be a disaster. And one thing that, I don't know about you guys, but just an attitude I'm developing, which probably isn't the greatest, is that as bad as things are, <laughs> it's like, I expect them to get much worse, you know? And I'm an optimist. I'm naturally a very optimistic person, very upbeat. Yeah, let's get after it, change the world, idealist kind of guy, but like, Dude, it's like over the last six years that I've been getting into this stuff, it's just I expect bad things, but we have a fighting chance, and then when it happens, it's worse than I imagined, and then there's more. It's like those 1995 commercials, and wait, there's more, <laughs> you know? And so uh, the particularly upsetting thing about the Afghanistan situation for me, and I don't know about you guys, but it's the dogs. I hear the dogs were left behind, and... Yeah, I mean, the dogs are innocent creatures, and they should be left out of all human engagements of, of war and all that stuff. That's just my soft side kicking in. Uh, I really love animals, and when I see what the United States is doing to dogs, when I look at um, what Australia is doing to dogs, it just breaks my heart and makes me sad. But we are going to talk about stuff beyond that. There is just like up panoply of things to discuss in regards to the Afghani withdrawal. And one thing that I've noticed is that when you look at different news sources around the world, you really get a better perspective on what the empire looks like from abroad. Because when you read like, you know, sources here in the United States, USA Today, CNN, Fox News, you get a very empire-centric perspective of what's happening. And everyone in this country has just gone completely insane. So it's just like, you don't even want to dig into it at all. But when you get into like the Hindu Times, the uh, you know Asian Times, and some of these other popular publications outside the United States, you kind of get to see how it is our insanity is affecting them as a country that is becoming, in a world that is becoming ever more volatile. So we're going to dig into some of those perspectives today. But we're going to talk about Eurasian Trade Zone, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative coming out of China, and de-dollarization in general, how that affects you. <clears throat> Maybe we'll tie it into crypto a little bit. But yeah, that's sort of what it is I want to do today. So let's dig into the content. China will require foreign vessels to report in territorial 
waters. Okay, so China's starting to make moves uh, with... It's not just the Afghanistan pullout. It's the significant level of incompetence on a military basis that is making China emboldened. Now, yeah, there is a lot of money printing going on. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening on the level of uh, finance in the United States. And we have the world reserve currency and the world looking at that is making them say, okay, well, maybe we should opt for different currencies. Maybe we should look for other options. And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing Russia dump the dollar, which is one particular reason why the United States has a problem with Russia. They're trying to build up this Eurasian trade zone, as we'll get to in here in a little bit. But you have countries also starting to stockpile gold and they're, you know, diversifying into euros, into yuan, into yen, into other currencies. And the IMF came out with an article that said that the U.S. reserves uh, are at a 25-year low and they're precipitously declining. So a lot of people are looking at what's going on in the economic sphere and they're saying, well, that's not great. But the U.S. dollar reserve is enforced by the military. And we're going to get into the basics of the petrodollar here in a, in a sec, but uh, it's enforced by the U.S. military. That's why we have such a big military. Typically, the way it works is we use our military to enforce the usage of the dollar, and then when the dollar is used in oil trades and in other uh, you know, international trade settlements, uh, a lot of those dollars are then invested back into U.S. treasuries, back into debt, which gives us the capacity to expand our military and then to embolden those operations. And so not only that, but we have Saudi Arabia, which, you know, uh, refreshes their dollars uh, back in the United States through buying weapons from us uh, and just stuff like that and selling us oil and all that. So that is to be considered. And when the military looks like totally incompetent and it doesn't look like a threat, okay, that further diminishes the strength of the U.S. dollar around the world like there's an intricate intricate connection between the military and the usage of the dollar around the world and you look at iraq we bombed iraq because they wanted to start using the euro instead of the dollar same thing with libya they want to start using something called the gold dinar and they wanted to create like a pan-african trade union that was sort of away from the u.s dollar and then what did we do we bombed then too and so we use the military to enforce the dollar, and if the military looks like it can't fight in the way that many fear that it could, or it's just run by bad leadership, okay, well, that's going to make other countries fill that void. That's going to make other countries think that they could pivot to another system economically, and so that's going to cause a huge move. And what we're about to see through all these articles is that happening. So let's go through here. In a move that could have, back to the article, in a move that could have ramifications for the free passage of both military and commercial vessels in the South China Sea, which is a huge hotspot for a lot of this stuff between Korea, China, Vietnam, the Philippines, the United States, South China Sea, huge hotspot, Taiwan also. Chinese authorities said on Sunday they will require a range of vessels to report their information when passing through what, the China, what China sees as its territorial waters starting today. So that's China getting more leverage over the area, making a higher claim of authority. Over $5 trillion of trade passes through the South China Sea, and 55% of India's trade passes through its waters 
and the Malacca Strait. So this is an India-centric article, Hindu Times. And so India's a little bit worried about this, right? And India and China do not have the best relationship. They've been in some uh, confrontations and conflagrations uh, here in the last little bit recently. China claims under a so-called quote-unquote nine-dash line on its maps, most of the South China Sea's waters, which are disputed by several other countries, including the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. So it's more countries than I thought. Yeah, so it's an Asian hotspot. While it remains unclear how, whether, and where China plans to enforce this new regulation starting Wednesday, the Maritime Safety Administration said in a notice, operators of submersibles, nuclear vessels, ships carrying radioactive materials, and ships carrying bulk oil, chemicals, liquefied gas, and other toxic and harmful substances are required to report their detailed information upon their visits to the Chinese territorial waters. So, let me just make sure I am recording. But... What they're what they're doing is they're making it look like oh they're concerned about the environmental health of you know the South China Sea with all this stuff or they're just concerned about their security in regards to nuclear vessels and things like this but I mean these are the biggest polluters on Earth let's not concern ourselves with their concerns about the environment this is about gaining leverage over the geopolitically critical area of the South China Sea so. Such a rollout of maritime regulations are a sign of stepped-up efforts to safeguard China's national security at sea by implementing strict rules to boost maritime identification capability. That's what the Global Times says. The Global Times is pretty much run by the CCP over in China, so don't take that with too many grains of salt. Or take that with a lot of grains of salt, I guess. Um... so the vessels will also have to submit information on the nature of goods and cargo dead weight. After entering the Chinese territorial sea, a follow-up report is not required. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So they're making moves, South China Sea. And this is from Zero Hedge, this next article here. A strategic apocalypse. Now, Zero Hedge is a little bit apocalyptic when it comes to things, but... A seismic shift, years in the making. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff is just things that are building up. Nothing just happens instantly. There is a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Uh, China is more determined. And this is before the pullout, the disastrous pullout. Uh, This is just sort of building the scene. China is more determined to shape the region than many analysts realize. And just a note... uh, Huge, 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 huge lithium reserves in Afghanistan. And that's speculated to be one of the reasons that we were there. Huge untapped mineral resources there in Afghanistan. And the imagination is a lot of that is going to be integrated into China's Belt and Road Initiative. And so, yeah. A huge geopolitical event, back to the article, just occurred in Afghanistan. The implosion of a key Western strategy for managing what Mackinder in the 19th century called the Asian heartland. Right, Afghanistan is very geopolitically critical. Uh, if you look at Zbigniew Brzezinski's uh, The Master Game Plan or something like that, like Ukraine and Afghanistan are both critical, which is why the Soviet Union wanted to get it back in the 70s and why we funded basically the modern-day Taliban. Uh, they were called the Mujahideen back then. 
and we funded them to try to fight the Soviets and prevent them from taking that position. And then we were back there to take that position later when the U.S. won the Cold War. We were like, okay, we're going to move in. And then we couldn't beat the young people that we armed. So that is sort of what happened. That was accomplished without fighting and in a few days is almost unprecedented. It has been a shock, not just one of those ephemeral shocks that is soon forgotten, but a deeply traumatic one. And you guys kind of felt that, right? When you're watching everything going on in Afghanistan, you may not be aware of all the stuff going on behind the scenes economically. But you kind of had an idea that it was a big deal, uh, and that's because it is. There are many ramifications to what is going to be coming as a result of this. And I'm concerned about Taiwan. If I was in Taiwan right now, maybe I'd take a little extended vacation out of there. But God willing, that's not going to happen, what we think is going to happen there. Unlike the psychological impact of 9-11, the Western world is treating the experience as mourning for a lost loved one. Uh, yeah, this is emotional stuff. Let's get to the deeds. Here we have a clear statement from the editors. The Afghan debacle is tragic because the American dream of being the indispensable nation in a world where the values of civil rights, women empowerment, and religious tolerance rule proved to just be a dream. Yeah, they don't want that stuff in Afghanistan, dude. Okay. <laughs> like, they don't want that at all. Like, they were doing an interview, I think it was somebody like from CBS or something like this, and they were asking some people in the Taliban, hey, what do you think about uh, women being leaders in politics and things like this? And they just started to laugh, and they're like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you can't force people into this stuff, right? And, uh, yeah, just... that That's probably the cover story for a lot of what we did in Afghanistan. Uh, but it wasn't going to work. You can't really believe that was going to be the case, right? IQ is also pretty important. Biden, Blinken, and Jake Sullivan might craft statements. Blah, blah, blah. So NATO, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Ruben says plainly that what Afghanistan was truly about was disrupting Central Asia to weaken Russia and China. That's right. And while we were in Afghanistan, that prevented uh, certain pipelines from being built that connected Russia with other countries and China with other countries, railways from being built and trade infrastructure from being built from these countries to Europe and other places. And so it was a very integral place. Uh, let me pull up a map just so you guys can sort of understand the landscape here. So Afghanistan on map. Uh, yeah, so... No, no, no. On a world map. Okay. So let's zoom in here. No! I apologize. I'm trying to work this right now. So... So you see this, guys? You've got India right here, China right here, Russia right here, Iran. And these countries want to form a big trading block. And you've got like Europe right here, Turkey right here, uh, Arabia. So this is a huge central hub. And it's smack dab in the middle of uh, where they're trying to make things happen. So just sort of keep its geography in mind. And yeah, it's serious. Like Iran wants to send a lot of oil to China. And one of the main routes would be 
to go through Afghanistan right here. Uh, so consider that. What's that country to the right? I'm not, not the best when it comes to geography. Pakistan. Yeah, Pakistan funded the Taliban. So they're behind a lot of the operations that were going on. So, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Back to the article. Ruben at least spares us the hypocrisy about safeguarding girls' education. Others who are close to the U.S. military-industrial complex continue the mantra of the need to redeploy to Afghanistan and for continued war and consequent weapon sales to Afghanistan in part to protect women's rights. Yeah, so that's just a cover story. It's ridiculous. Uh, Ruben concludes, rather than embrace America's position against China, however, Biden has hemorrhaged it. Now, why do you think that is? Do you think Biden has any relationships with China? I think you guys recall his son being paid significant sums from China or Chinese investment firms. Uh, I mean, he, Biden's pretty in deep with the Chinese, and he's been in Congress for like 50 years, so you don't think he's built up some relationships with the power structure there? I mean, whatever you think about Trump, it's clear that he was very anti-China. And he wanted to prevent what is likely now going to happen, which is the rise of China as a hegemon in a new multipolar world, uh, which allies Russia and China, and maybe Iran is in on that. And what power are we going to have to stop them, really? Because if you look at the geography, here we are way the hell over here on our own little island of sorts with Canada. And then you've got all the action now going on with China, Russia, and Asia, and the Eurasian trade zone. And we're starting to see the pipelines be built, Nord Stream connecting Europe and Russia, and other pipelines connecting Russia and China, pipelines connecting Iran and China. So everything's coming together. Uh, Turkey, I think, is making a canal to connect uh, some trade routes between them and other parts of Europe and Asia. So a lot of stuff is happening. A lot of stuff is happening, and Trump didn't want that to happen. He wanted to have the U.S. continue to be the empire. And I made a tweet about this the other day. Either you have an empire, or you are part of somebody else's empire. And the Chinese empire seems to be on its way to establishing itself, which doesn't really bode that well for the future of the world. But we'll talk about that another time. Uh, in Britain, too, chair of the Foreign, <clears throat> Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Tom uh, was has lamented Biden's strategic mistake and the imperative not to give up but to persevere. This isn't just about Afghanistan. It's about us all. We are engaged in a challenge over the way the world works. We're seeing autocratic powers like China and Russia challenge the rules and break the agreements we've made. We can turn this around. We need to. This is a choice. So far, we're choosing to lose. Many hawks in Washington acknowledge that this is, of course, impossible. The era is now long gone. And, yeah, I mean, we're not going to go out back to Afghanistan. There's no way. I mean, we just pretty much made the Taliban one of the biggest military forces in the world with all of the high-tech gadgets and weaponry that we had left there. We left tanks. We left helicopters. We left night vision goggles, which granted us a major strategic advantage in that war. Now they have the same technology we do, and yeah, I mean, it's going to be much harder to fight them now. So, I mean, I don't want to go back. 
There's no going back after what we did. <clears throat> and just another comment. I feel like we're making such strategic mistakes treating Russia as the enemy. And this is heretical with what you're supposed to think as an American or as a Westerner. But look, Trump is right. We need to make an alliance with Russia against China. And that could have happened because we have more in common with Russia than we do with China or than they do with China. It would have been a more natural alliance. We could have asserted ourselves as a Christian uh, country which values our culture and our heritage. And we could have aligned with Russia on that. And yeah, Russia is a little bit more dictatorial. But look, we are kind of the same way here in the West. You know, you have people that you're allowed to vote for, but you don't really choose who it is that you have a choice of in regards to the people that you vote for. Most of the people that you have a choice to vote for have been chosen for you by special interest groups, by corporations. Uh, I mean, I've given up on politics. I mean, politics to me is uh, like we're past the point of politics. That's why I think Monero is important. That's why I think other avenues for securing your freedom are important because to tie up your hope for a better world and your freedom, uh, it's in politics, it's not the way, in my opinion. Uh, and based on what happened in last election, uh, no matter your opinion on that, the faith in politics now to solve certain problems has been significantly diminished because nobody really trusts the system anymore. Uh, but I forgot how I got off on this tangent here. We, we should have allied with Russia when we had the chance, but no, we had to keep excusing... We had to keep coming up with excuses for funding NATO, which means turning Russia into the enemy, because if Russia isn't the enemy, then NATO really doesn't have any enemies, and now they're turning towards China, which they should have done a long time ago. But we kept integrating countries into NATO closer and closer and closer to Russia's border over the last 25 years. And so we pushed them completely into China's camp. We did that. That's not them just saying, oh, China's awesome. We love communism. Like, no, they're not communist anymore. Russia hates communism. <laughs> like, they just went through a miserable hundred years of communism. Like, they would have rather allied with the United States than China. But there they are, making these arrangements because now they have to, because of our ridiculous incompetence or corruption, however you want to put it. So, those are just some comments on that. Let me know what you think. We're talking geopolitics here, which is completely complicated. There are many different angles to this. So let me know your thoughts. I don't have the monopoly on truth here. I'm just giving you my perspective from what it is I've read. Let me know what you guys think. I'm open to different perspectives on this stuff. So, All right. The urgings from the British Prime Minister in a telecom uh, with Biden, however that the gains of the last 20 years in Afghanistan is literally a dream. But the deeper story is one not of the transformation of the Taliban, but a rather seismic shift in geopolitics. Western intelligence agencies were so consumed with quote-unquote counterterrorism that they failed to see the new dynamics at play. 
Certainly, they might explain the Biden administration's assessment of the long months it would take before the Ghani regime was at risk of failing. Many years ago, before the Soviet withdrawal of Afghanistan in 1979, I was based in Peshawar, Pakistan, near Afghanistan. I was responsible for diplomatic reporting on the war and engagement with Afghan leaders during the Soviet era. I came to know Taliban, the Taliban, which had recently been forged by Pakistani intelligence. They were then intensely parochial, geography, and politically sectarian, xenophobic, tribal, and unbendingly rigid. Yeah, and that's who we funded. And by the way, pretty much all of the funding for Pakistan's intelligence agencies come from the United States. <laughs> like, we pretty much fund Pakistan's intelligence operations. So we funded the Taliban. And they continued to support the Taliban long after we stopped supporting the Taliban and started to fight them. And remember, I think that we found uh, bin Laden, I want to say, in Pakistan. Don't quote me on that. I should know this, but I don't. Let me know if I'm wrong about that, but I believe that's what happened. As Pashtuns recidivists into the biggest minority ethnic group in Afghanistan, they would kill each other uh ethnicities wantonly. Uh, so this is going into the background of the Taliban. The Taliban we see today is a far more complex, multi-ethnic, and sophisticated coalition, which is why they have been able to, at such breathtaking speed, topple the Western allied and installed Afghanistan government. And I believe the Afghanistan president or before he was overthrown by the Taliban he was an American like his kids here live here in the United States and they go to US colleges so a western puppet leader basically and so do you think the afghanity people the afghani people like that i don't think so i don't think they really appreciate that especially considering that we bombed a lot of innocent people during this war in afghanistan and there's a lot of documentation of just wanton killing by Americans of innocent Afghani people from, like, drone strikes and things like this. So they didn't like us very much, and when the Taliban made their move, a lot of people were like, cool, all right, come on in. A lot of the people in the army, too, the Afghani army. And something to note, I probably need to say this cryptically so that I don't get censored, but uh, there are certain practices which were done by a lot of people in the Afghani army and in the Afghanistan uh, aristocracy, if you want to put it that way, that the Taliban did not like. And a lot of people in Afghanistan didn't like either. And there were, it involved, you know, kids, and it involved uh, people who had a, backwards approach, I guess you could say, to how to uh, interact with these kids. That's, I think, as much as I could say. And the Taliban, they didn't like that. And a lot of the people in the population didn't like that. And so there was some sympathy to that. And I think U.S. troops were actually instructed to not interfere with that practice because it apparently has a long tradition in Afghanistan. Uh, go look up what I'm talking about. I know I said that cryptically, but I think you would understand what I mean. Uh, so they talk Afghan, back to the article, political inclusion. 
and look to Iran, Russia, China, and Pakistan for mediation and to facilitate their place in the quote-unquote great game. They aspire to play a regional role as a pluralist Sunni Islamist government. This is why they have given explicit assurances to these key external partners that their rise to power will bring neither a bloodbath of score settling nor civil war. Well, we'll see how that is. We'll see what the deal is with this ISIS-K thing is. They also promise that different religious sects will be respected and girls and women can be educated. Okay, we'll see how that turns out. The sweep of the Taliban to power, however, has been years in the making with key outside actors playing a crucial part in overseeing the metamorphosis. More concretely, as consensus with the Taliban on the future is reached, these external powers, China, Iran, Russia, and Pakistan, have brought their allies, their Afghan allies, i.e. other Afghan minorities, who are almost as numerous, to the negotiating table alongside the Taliban. The latter links with China go back several years. Iran, too, has been engaged with the Taliban and other Afghan components in a similar vein for at least two decades. Russia and Pakistan engaged jointly in December 2016. Okay. As a result of this concerted outreach, the Taliban leadership adjusted to the real politic of Central Asia. They see that the SCO represents the coming regional strategic paradigm, which can enable them to come out of their isolation as a political as political untouchables and, ta- and pave a path for them to govern and rebuild Afghanistan with economic assistance from SCO member states. I'm not sure what SCO means. Uh, if you do, let me know. Civil war remains a risk. And yeah, yeah, it could happen. CIA could get involved again and cause more trouble. Or some other things could happen. There's just a lot of weaponry laying around, right? Maybe there are going to be people who don't like the new Taliban. Maybe the Taliban gets corrupted by the power and start doing things that they uh, didn't otherwise plan to do, right? So still a risk. It's not just a simple question of trust. Back to the article, the difference today lies with the external geopolitical architecture that has brought this event into being. These external regional partners will tell and have told the Taliban that they violate their assurances. They will regain their international pariah status. They will be classified as terrorists again. Their borders will close, their economy will tank, and the country racked by civil war yet again. In short, the calculus is rooted in self-interest rather than a presumption of trust. China is more determined to shape the region as many analysts realize. And reading into this, yeah, I did see a lot of people who were like, with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, uh, it could be that China in its Belt and Road initiatives are not going to be successful now. And it's just like, no, I think you guys are reading into this incorrectly. I think China and the Taliban are both in a perspective that as long as you don't interfere with our internal uh, operations, which seems to be the relationship that China has with just about everybody in the Islamic world, because remember what they're doing in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, uh, you know, you would think that a lot of these Islamist countries like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, and some of these other states would be like, no, this isn't cool. Like, you got to stop that. We're going to cut off trade. We're going to isolate you. No, that's not what's happening. It's just like, okay, you do you, uh, you know, and we're going to do us. You don't talk about what we're doing. We won't talk about what you're you're doing and we'll just trade and it'll be a mutual benefit relationship. And it could be that China won't be able to succeed in imposing its what they call soft cultural elements of the Belt and Road Initiative, but it could 
very much more likely be that they're able to succeed in establishing the hard elements of it, which is economic, which is, hey, we're going to take your resources, uh, we're going to pay you guys large amounts of money to develop your infrastructure uh, through debt, which then you'll pay back to us over the like next hundred years. And then, uh, you know, you'll be part of our trade structure and then you guys will benefit a lot economically. So, yeah, that could be what happens. Back to the article, it is often said that China is purely mercantile, interested only in advancing its economic agenda. Yet China's Xinjiang province is Islamist underbelly, shares a border with Afghanistan. Right, so Afghanistan, like, you remember the shape of the country? At that most eastern tip, like, that is the side of China, which has Xinjiang province with the Uyghurs. So it's a very ethnically Muslim area. And you've got Afghanistan, then you've got China, Xinjiang, China specifically. So this touches on state security, and China will therefore require stability in Afghanistan. It will not tolerate ethnic Turkic insurgents spurred by the West moving into or from Afghanistan into Turkmenistan or Xinjiang. The Uyghurs are ethnically Turkic. We can expect China to be tough on this point. Thus, not only have the U.S. and NATO been forced to exit from the crossroads of Asia in desperate disarray, but these developments set the stage for a major evolution of China in, in, of Russia and China's economic and trade regional corridor plans. As we talked about before, they also transformed the security of Central Asia in respect to Chinese and Russian vulnerabilities there. The U.S. so far has been denied an alternative military base in Central Asia. Yeah. To be fair, Michael Rubin was half right when he said that rather than enhance America's position against China, Biden has hemorrhaged it, but only half right, because the missing other half is that Washington was outplayed by Russia, China, and Iran. Western intelligence failed to utterly see... uh, the new domestic Afghan dynamics, the external actors underwriting the Taliban's negotiation with tribes. Additional pieces to this jigsaw picture of paradigm change uh, have become visible in the wake of the Taliban's sweep to power. One domino fell even before the Kabul rout. Iran's new administration has strategically repositioned the country towards prioritizing relations with other Islamic states, but in partnership with Russia and China. Right, so they're all coming together, and we're talking about, you know, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, uh, Tajikistan, some of these other countries. Deals are going on behind the scenes. Uh, And I believe that Mongolia is going to become integral in all this, and they're starting to initiate some gold mining operations over there, which look interesting. I'll just put that there. Uh, The Iranian National Security Council then declined to agree to the draft Vienna Agreement for a relaunch of the JCPOA. Right, so, again, we lost more leverage in regards to reestablishing the Iran nuclear deal. Why they need to make a deal with us when they're already in the good graces of China and Russia, who may be the next superpowers of the century. Right, why they need to make a deal with the United States and Israel. Uh, So that's to be considered. During the route, China and Russia coincidentally closed the airspace over North Afghanistan on the account of their joint military exercises taking place in the north of Afghanistan. Let me just take some water here. 
And for the first time, the two powers exercised under joint military control. Yep. This represents the third and very significant domino, though one barely noticed by the West. And then finally, Pakistan strategically repositioned too by declining to host any U.S. military presence in its territory. So yeah, yep, yep, yep. So India is becoming increasingly isolated. So look at this map again. Map of Asia. Because India has huge issues with Pakistan and China. Uh, there have been ever more signs of conflict. What is this? That's not what I'm looking for. So you got India with Pakistan at its northwest border. Then you've got Afghanistan. So that region is just bolstered uh, and blocking India here. And then you've got China to its northeast. And, yeah, it's sort of cornered in here. What allies does it have? Its allies... I think Vietnam would be one of its allies. Vietnam is rather not pro-China, if I understand that dynamic correctly. Uh, but Myanmar, I believe, just had a coup occur in their country. And I believe that the new... People in charge of Myanmar are pro-China. Let's look into that. Let's look into that. Just entertain me here. Myanmar, China. Yeah, that's how I do my research. <laughs> uh, Myanmar, China, the coup, and the future. Okay. So... In making major deals with Myanmar's military rulers, China seems to be violating its official guidance for investment abroad. Avoid conflict zones. Yeah, they don't care, as long as they have control. Although Myanmar is in a state of collapse and widening rebellion, China continues to advance its plans for a complex economic corridor in the country with the military, unveiling steps to move ahead with big, big joint venture projects. Now, this is saying that the United States the Chinese are falling into a trap, but this is by the United States Institute of Peace, so maybe, you know, maybe not the most pro-Chinese publication, not the most neutral publication. But yeah, China's going to continue to make deals. Probably. Any more information on this? U.S. News, BBC. I don't like these at all. Straits Times. Okay, maybe this is a little bit more. Neutral. Let's see what's going on here. Because that would, again, cut India off from an ally in Vietnam. It would make it hard for them to uh, you know, have land-locked coordination if something were to happen. So this is August 31st, so this is recent. They're meeting with the junta later. Myanmar has been in political chaos. Yes, we know. International efforts to stem the violence have failed to yield results, with the European Union accusing junta allies Russia and China of blocking efforts at the UN Security Council. Okay, so Russia is also in on this. They're making the deals. Special Envoy Sun Goyang met junta leader, this guy, and exchanged views on the political landscape of Myanmar. 
China supports Myanmar's efforts to restore social stability. Beijing enjoys exceptional leverage over Myanmar and has so far refused to label the military action a coup. So, yeah, again, there's going to be relationships which form because of that. Again, this goes back to our point earlier. Beijing doesn't care what countries do inside their borders. As long as they can make economic deals and advance their own self-interest, they're fine. Which is one of the reasons why they're going to become uh, the global hegemon. Like, they mind their own business, and they look out exclusively for their self-interest. And this is just the way of the world. This is just the way of the world. Um, So... That's why they're going ever more powerful. They appeal to the people in power, not so much to the people of the people in power, but, you know, you just need to appeal to the leaders and to the economic interests of the country, and you could probably make a deal. Myanmar is also a vital piece of Beijing's huge Belt and Road infrastructure, which we're going to talk about later more, but it's interesting to know that they're also part of that development. Last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited the country, uh, and promised to support Myanmar in its government. Chinese state media on Tuesday reported the successful completion of a test journey carrying cargo along a new sea road rail passage linking southwest China to the Indian Ocean through Myanmar. Okay, so yeah, they're part of the new Belt and Road Initiative trade structure, which is going throughout Asia and Europe. So they're in. So again, India is going to become ever more isolated. Um, not looking good for them. Are we almost finished with this article? Let's see. So again, Russia and China are having more partnership as a result of this. China will play a key part in this. China and Russia have recognized the Taliban government. And China will likely build a pipeline along the five-nation corridor bringing Iranian oil to China, like we talked about earlier, right, via northern Afghanistan. So there you go. It will likely then follow on with a north-south corridor, ultimately linking St. Petersburg via Afghanistan, St. Petersburg being Russia, to Iran's Chabahar port lying across the strait from Oman. Yeah, so that is happening. And one more note here. I think I skipped this. Iran was invited formally to join the SCO, which ultimately would imply Iran joining the European or the Eurasian Economic Union, thus giving the country a fresh economic and trade horizon absent the lifting of the U.S. siege of its economy. Right. And so more and more nations are just going to avoid these sanctions that the United States poses on people. And as the United States loses more control and more leverage over the world because our military is weakening, because the dollar is weakening, more people are going to kind of do what they want and just buck the U.S. And the U.S. isn't going to like that. They're going to impose even more sanctions. When they impose even more sanctions, that makes more nations worried about being exposed to this U.S. dollar system because who knows if they get their assets sanctioned by the United States and then that's just going to further incentivize people to exit and do what they want. And so that's just going to accelerate the divergence and the fall of the dollar, right? So consider that. 
again, let me know your guys, uh, thoughts, guys. There is a lot here. I'd love to learn if you guys have different perspectives on this. So with everything going on in Afghanistan, and we talked about India a little bit earlier, they're a little bit worried about what's going on. And there are some news clips coming out uh, from some prominent people in the Indian media, and they're like, what are these Americans doing? <laughs> they just they don't understand what kind of crazy stuff we're doing. They look at our president. They look at the administration and the military leadership, and they're just like, uh, yeah, you guys are really making us nervous over here. <laughs> like, and so what are they doing? So Modi is meeting with Putin, uh, and they agree to form a permanent India-Russia bilateral channel. So now India is pivoting a little bit more to Russia as a result of this because Russia is a regional uh, uh, base of security, I guess you could say, in the region. And so if the United States is going to be less reliable as an ally, well, they got to start making relationships where they are. And if they're last to the table, they'll get the worst deals. And so they have to strategically think, okay, I'm still very much allied with the United States. Here's Russia right here. Here's China. We have problems with these people. But look, uh, you know, if we don't make this move soon, we could be isolated. We could be cut out of these uh, trade infrastructure deals which are being made and that could impact us over the long run and looking at what's going on in the united states do we see them as a reliable long-term partner uh their population doesn't really seem to be intent on making anything and having a thriving economy and actually having things to ship out to cover the things that they ship in you know our trade deficit is like a trillion dollars uh so let's think about a relationship what are we getting from this what could we get through establishing relationships with other people in Europe and in Asia, like Russia and China, right? After the Taliban's takeover in Afghanistan, back to the article, Prime Minister Modi spoke to Russian President Vladimir Putin and discussed the unfolding situation in the Islamic country. Let me just see how long I've gone on, because we have a lot to go through here. 45 minutes, okay. Uh, as the Taliban has taken complete control of Afghanistan, Prime Minister Narendra Modi spoke to Putin and discussed the unfolding situation in the war-torn country. During the exchange of views on the situation in Afghanistan, the sides noted the importance of coordinated efforts which would contribute to the establishment of peace and stability in this country, ensuring security in the region as a whole. They expressed intention to enhance cooperation on countering the dissemination of terrorist ideology and the substance threat emanating from the territory of Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban said that they're going to make the harvesting of poppy fields illegal and the growing of poppy illegal, which was another shop shocking thing. It's just like, who are these guys? Why didn't they take over a while ago? And Wait, okay. There is a huge opiate problem here in the United States. Where are all these pharmaceutical companies? Where are all these drugs coming from? Most of it in the world, a lot of it comes from Afghanistan. And if we are in control of Afghanistan and we have troops, as has been documented for a long time, guarding these poppy fields, uh, again, where is all this coming from? Now, if China gets involved in the region, because a lot of uh, fentanyl and a lot of drugs and opiates come out of China, well, that could be problematic, right? Maybe they start to harvest those and they make a deal with the Taliban. 
maybe the Taliban is just saying this stuff. Maybe they're going to continue to harvest the poppy because you've got billions upon billions of dollars there in crop. But, you know, when it comes to the Taliban and when it comes to some of these more religious-oriented movements, they care more about... <laughs> I was about to say they care more about ethics than uh, <laughs> economic considerations. But, you know, you know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. They're a little bit more hardcore when it comes to uh, pushing and establishing their faith and their uh, traditions, right? And if that's not part of their tradition, they may give it up, even if it costs them billions upon billions of dollars, but we'll see. We'll see. Back to the article, it was agreed to form a permanent bilateral channel for consultations on this issue. So... Yep, they're going to cooperate a little bit more. The leaders discussed the unfolding security situation in Afghanistan and its implications on the region and the world. They emphasized the importance of maintaining peace and security. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So that is just an interesting note. So let's get to the petrodollar now. We went over this a little bit, but this is just a good general summary of kind of what that is, what system we have in place and what system we've had in place ever since we went off the gold standard and ever since we had to establish a way that the dollar could still be used as the world reserve currency, even though it wasn't backed by any commodity. It was just fiat. And this is how we did it. So the petrodollar is the U.S. dollar paid to oil exporting countries in exchange for oil. So it's encouraging OPEC and all those nations to use the dollar as their primary currency of settlement uh, for oil transfers and oil trade. The dollar is the preeminent global currency. As a result, most international transactions, including oil, are priced in dollars. Oil exporting nations receive dollars for their exports, not their own currency. In addition, most oil exporting nations own their oil industries. That makes their national income dependent on the dollar's value. If it falls, so do their government's revenue, and so does their government, right? And this is one reason why Saudi Arabia is very concerned about everything that's happening. And we're about to get to them here in a sec. They are now making deals with Russia too. Uh, well, Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries, which pretty much solely depend on oil revenues in order to prop up the government, in order to prop up a lot of the population, which doesn't work, and is being subsidized by the government, sort of paid off to not revolt. And so... If these countries have a lot of dollar reserves, which of course they do because that's the nature of the petrodollar, they cycle a lot of their profits from oil sales into U.S. treasuries, well, that's going to make them really nervous. If other nations start to de-dollarize, then that's going to make them want to de-dollarize, and then it turns into this sort of like game theory type of situation where it's just like, okay, well, we want to hold on to our dollars, but we'll hold on to them as long as you guys hold on to them. But if they start to sell it first, then the other party doesn't benefit, and then it becomes like, okay, well, who's going to sell first? And then once the first person sells, then it might turn into a panic, you know. But we'll see how that turns out. As a result, most of these oil exporters also peg their currencies to the dollar. That way, if the dollar value falls, so does the price of all their domestic goods and services. That helps these countries avoid wide swings in inflation or deflation. Oh, so it was actually manifested back in 1945. And we talked about Bretton Woods yesterday. 
The petrodollar system is tied to the history of the gold standard. After World War II, the United States held most of the world's supply of gold. And one of the reasons for that, just to kind of fancy, uh, just to sort of tinkle your mind a little bit, is because in Europe and all across the world when we had World War II, and World War I for that matter, none of the war was fought on U.S. soil. And so we were able to ship out a lot of bread and butter, and a lot of guns and butter actually is the term. And when these countries and these nations involved in war had their factories blown up and had their economies destroyed by war, well, our economy was still going. And in fact, it was better than ever, our economy, because we were able to ship out a lot of these goods and provide a lot of services. And what did these countries send us for all of these goods, these uh, armaments and all this food and all this aid? Well, they sent us gold. Um, and so we were able to stash up a lot of the world's gold. And by the way, this is where like this confusion comes from, where people think war is somehow good for the economy. It's completely ludicrous. Like People are like, oh, World War II, it saved us from the Great Depression. And it's just like, dude, that's because we weren't in the war. Like, we sent people to the war, and we spent a lot of money, uh, and, you know, we had low interest rates and stuff like that. But at the same time, like, we basically became the world economy during World War II because we're the ones shipping the guns. We're the ones shipping the aid. Remember Lend-Lease with the Soviet Union when we pretty much armed the Soviet Union and made it so that they could fight the Germans and succeed in that venture? And... We gave the Soviets seemingly other things, too. It's speculated that we actually gave the Soviets uh, the blueprints for the atomic bomb, which started the whole Cold War. Who did that? It's speculated, but that could have been a thing. We had too close a relationship with the Soviet Union. FDR, he, I believe, was the first president to officially recognize the Soviet Union because a lot of countries around the world, they didn't recognize the communists when they took over back in 1917, and it wasn't until FDR that they were recognized by the United States, and then they become a legitimate power. And we could go down that whole rabbit hole. That's interesting. We may have to talk about that in another video, but there was a little bit too much... There was a little bit too much of a partnership with the communists in the Soviet Union. And a lot of that was because of the communists in the United States, who were actually very influential in FDR's uh, cabinet and in FDR's administration. And that's one of the reasons why the depression went on so long. It went on so long because they didn't know how to solve it. They're trying to solve it with more fiscal spending and more taxes, but that's not how you did it. If you look at Calvin Coolidge, uh, with the first great depression, which happened, I think like 1920 to 21, uh, he cut taxes, he cut government spending. And the economy roared back in like a year. It was a miracle. Nobody ever talks about it, though. Nobody ever talks about it because he made the Great Depression not that bad because of his policies of making government smaller and having the private sector grow back on its own. FDR did the opposite, which is why the uh, economy faltered for so long, and it was saved only by this miraculous situation where we funded a worldwide war. And... Yeah, so anyways, let's get back to the article. I was about to go even deeper. But back to the article, it agreed to redeem any U.S. dollar for its value in gold if the other countries pegged their currencies to the dollar. Other countries signed onto this deal in 1944 Bretton Woods Conference. We talked about Bretton Woods yesterday. A lot of stuff happened there. Establishment of the IMF, establishment of the World Bank, 
established the U.S. dollar the world reserve currency. Uh, on February 14, 1945, President Franklin Roosevelt initiated the alliance with the Saudi Arabia, or with Saudi Arabia. He met the king. The United States built an airfield at Dharan and returned from military and business training. This alliance was so critical that it survived subsequent years of different opinion over the Arab-Israeli conflict. In 1971, U.S. Okay, so this is where we get to the critical part. U.S. diaglation prompted runs on the dollar. Many countries asked to redeem their U.S. dollars for gold, and a lot of that was after Vietnam, where we spent way more money than we had, and. A lot of countries were like, look, you guys can't afford this stuff. We want our gold back. You guys are going to go broke. And yeah, to protect the remaining U.S. gold reserves, President Richard Nixon removed the dollar from the gold standard. Yeah, so we just shafted all these countries, basically. Uh, as a result, the value of the dollar plummeted. That helped the U.S. economy as its export values also decreased, making them more competitive. And goodness, dude, like I think gold went up like 800% in that decade. Let's just look into this real quick. Gold price, 1970s. Uh, yeah, so look at this. Do you guys remember when FDR signed that directive that everybody had to turn in their gold. Uh, and he made the private ownership of gold bullion illegal, basically. Well, it was 20 bucks, and then, boom, it went all the way up to 35 So if you defied the government and you kept your gold, you made a pretty good trade right there. Sometimes it uh, profits to not go along with... Well, we won't say that. Gold prices, 1940-1949... So look at this, right? So at the beginning of the decade, you had gold at, what, 20 bucks an ounce, something like that. Went all the way up to 500. Went exponential. Same thing with silver. Silver went up to 50 bucks, which in today's uh, dollars is like $400 in today's inflation-adjusted dollars. So the all-time high for silver was actually like $400. With silver... I don't know if you guys can see this here on the website at $25 or more closer to 24. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most undervalued assets, if not the most undervalued asset on earth. Other than Monero, of course, but you know. Uh, a falling dollar hurt oil exporting countries because contracts were priced in U.S. dollars. Their oil revenue dropping along with the dollar, the cost of imports denominated in other countries, currencies increased. So, petrodollar recycling, let's get to this. This is the main point. In 1979, the United States and Saudi Arabia, with the help of Henry Kissinger, by the way, negotiated the United States-Saudi Arabian Joint Commission on Economic Cooperation. They agreed to use U.S. dollars for oil contracts. The U.S. dollars would be recycled back to America through contracts with U.S. companies. These companies improve Saudi infrastructure through technology transfer. So we're talking about uh, military arms uh, companies and then, I guess, uh, other companies that help build the infrastructure. I'm not sure what companies those are. 
That increases imports, provides higher wages for government employees, and boosts the local economy. So you're starting to sort of understand all this stuff, coming collapse of the petrodollar. The United States used the power of the petrodollars to enforce its foreign policy. Well, and the other way around. We use our foreign policy to enforce the use of the petrodollar. Uh, many countries don't fight back. Well, because they don't want to end up like Muammar Gaddafi and uh, Saddam Hussein. They're afraid it would mean the collapse of the petrodollar system. Yeah, and a lot of countries are worried about this, but slowly but surely, they're lessening their exposure. Yep, yep, yep. So all that stuff. Okay. Interesting stuff. Let's just go ahead and close this. A lot of memories being used on my computer, apparently. Let's close this stuff. So this is when we get to the interesting stuff. An hour into the video, but I think we've made some pretty good points. Remember, guys, like the video, subscribe, share the video if you find it to be valuable. But better, best of all, like it, right? And comment as to what you guys think about all this stuff. We're going through a lot of heady stuff. I could be missing some things. Let me know what you guys think about this stuff. But this is the information. These are my hot takes. Saudi Arabia threatens to drop dollar for oil trades. So this is in 2019. So there's already a thread kind of unraveling. This is oilprice.com. You can find a lot of good oil news here. Saudi Arabia has threatened the United States to stop using dollars for its oil trades in an attempt to discourage legislators from passing a bill dubbed NOPEC, aimed at holding OPEC liable for cartel prices under U.S. law. So yeah, if you guys don't know, OPEC is a cartel. A lot of countries, they get together uh, in order to pretty much mandate a price, set a price artificially for oil. So there's no free market for oil. A lot of it is established by this OPEC cartel. And as noted in this statement here, well, Saudi Arabia pretty much has a nuclear option on the United States. If Saudi Arabia stops using dollars for its oil trades, pretty much everyone else will too. Because a lot of these countries, based on what we've done to the Middle East over the last 20 years, they're like, we hate these Americans. These people are just redonkulously destructive to our neighborhood. Uh, it'd be nice if they got out. And if a lot of these countries got rid of the dollar and the U.S. were to collapse and it wouldn't be able to afford its military, well, it might find a little bit more regional peace. That may be what they reason. That may be what they think. We'll see if that's true. I don't think the Middle East will ever find peace, but you know, at least it's not coming from an outside source. They kind of love fighting each other, don't they? Back to the article, Reuters reports, citing unnamed sources, that this, I do pray for Middle East, or peace in the Middle East, by the way. I'm not trying to be pessimistic or negative. I do hope that happens. But, you know, 2,000 years of history has a pretty good track record. Reuters reports, citing unnamed sources, that the switch from U.S. dollars to other currencies has been discussed in senior Saudi circles and that it has also been shared with U.S. government officials from the Energy Department. So that's huge. Now, this is from 2019, remember, so this is no longer that much of a relevant threat because I don't know what happened to that bill, but just remember, like, this is a thing. This is a point of tension between the Saudi Arabians and the United States. The Saudis say, let the Americans pass NOPEC, and it would be the U.S. economy that would fall apart. Right, so they have a nuclear option. Uh, 
which is one of the reasons why the 9-11 papers haven't been released. There are some documents in the government that seem to relate and connect the Saudis to the people who hijacked the planes. And people have been trying to get these documents from the government forever. And a lot of people, they just can't understand. Like, why don't, why don't you release these documents? I mean, we need to understand what happened to our families and stuff. Well, people in government know that if they're to release these documents, and I think there was news stories about this a few years ago, well, Saudis would do what they're threatening to do here. And so, yeah, nobody wants that to happen. And so that's not going to come out. But, of course, this fuels a lot of conspiracies about what happened, right? Another source commented, the Saudis know they have the dollar as the nuclear option. So who really is in control here? Is it Saudi Arabia or the United States? Now, if they were to do this, the speculation is that we would bomb them into the Stone Age. That's the speculation, that if they were to drop the dollar, well, they would just end up like Iraq or one of these other countries. Thankfully, we have only, (laughs) what sold hundreds of billions of dollars to weaponry, of weaponry to the Saudis over the last, uh, you know, 20 years we've had this relationship. Right. Other countries are already using other currencies and oil trades, notably Russia and Iran, but also China for some of its trades. And so one of the speculations is that given this next article we're about to go through, I think that's all we need to glean from this article here, but this is recent, and this has big, big implications. This is probably the main article I want to get to today. Uh, Saudi Arabia, and this is August 25th, 2021. This happened last week. Saudi Arabia and Russia sign a new military agreement for weapons. And... You know, for the last 25 years, it's been, we've had an agreement with Saudi Arabia to sell them a lot of our weapons, which allows a lot of dollars to funnel back in the United States. And a lot of these weapons companies, they have close relationships with people in the United States. Politique. And so, yeah, it's just like one of these big market hubs of corruption and destruction and death. But now it seems they're going to go to Russia. And so how long... And I made a tweet about this. How long until Saudi Arabia begins to accept yuan for oil sales to China? That would be another big domino to drop. And that would be very indicative of big things to come. And it could be. It's already happening, but there haven't been reports on it. But I imagine if somebody figured that out, that'd be out really quick. I mean, that'd be huge news. But let's just go through this article here. Saudi Arabia and Russia have signed a military cooperation agreement at an arms expo outside Moscow. Saudi Deputy Defense Minister Khalid bin Salman announced on Twitter that he signed the agreement with Russian Deputy Defense Minister Alexander Fomin aimed at developing joint military cooperation between the two countries. Yeah, so typically the way it's worked is Saudi Arabia has trusted the United States with military protection. But now if they're going to Russia, they may be anticipating that, okay, once we get off the dollar system, which may be what they're hedging for, if the United States attacks us, we want to make sure we have a regional ally like Russia in the mix, which has huge alliances now with China, to make sure that we're protected from 
our old partners who are now completely going crazy and are losing control of the situation. And that, I think, is what this means. Salman also met with Russian Defense Minister Sergei uh, Shoigu during his visit outside Moscow. The Deputy Defense Minister said the meeting explored ways to strengthen military and defense cooperation between our two countries. There were no immediate details of the military agreement. Russia is the second largest weapons exporter after the United States. They got a lot of those Kleshnikovs, don't they? A lot of them AKs. The United States had traditionally been the top arms supplier to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was the main recipient of U.S. arms transfers in 2016 to 20, accounting for 24% of U.S. arms exports. So what is Saudi Arabia involved in other than like the Yemeni war where they're just bombing the crap out of, you know, goat riding villagers? Who is the big threat to Saudi Arabia that they need to buy so many weapons? Like they bought hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons. For what? Who are they going to war with? Because Saudi Arabia right now has a pretty good relationship with Israel, which, you know, set the uh, Islamic world up into a terror a few years ago. But, yeah, they're working together now pretty close. Uh, Riyadh and Mossad joining in union against Iran. Now, is there going to be a war on Iran? Well, if Saudi Arabia is now making deals with Russia for military cooperation. And Russia, China, and Iran also have military joint cooperation. Well, the likelihood that they're going to need all these weapons is declining, as far as I could tell. Now, maybe they will have issues with Syria. Who knows what the deal with that's going to be. I mean, Syria was just a complete fiasco. Total quagmire. We'll get to that in a little bit if we have time. I want to talk about why it is the Syria war happened. A lot of it had to do with oil pipelines, as you would probably expect. But let's just continue back to the article. We aim for a progressive development of cooperation in military and military technical fields on the entire spectrum of issues that pose mutual interest. So he noted that Russia had many new weapon systems, like the S-400 system, by the way, which we got really angry at Turkey for. Because Turkey decided that they were going to buy the S-400 instead of the United States Patriot missiles. And there was a huge uproar in regards to that. I mean, we threatened to kick <laughs> we threatened to kick Turkey out of NATO for that. Never happened. But, uh, yeah, Russia has pretty good gear. They've got those hypersonic missiles. The MiGs are pretty good aircraft, right? So they, they have proven themselves well in Syria. Yep, yep, yep. So, interesting things happening. The Eurasian Times. Let's go ahead and check this real quick. This may be one of those older articles, so we'll just go ahead and skip this. I want to get to the pipeline stuff. And if it doesn't load, we'll just have to... uh, We'll just have to kick it out. Hello, 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 hello. Let me know what you guys think about all this stuff in the comments. 
Let's go ahead and close these if we don't need them anymore. Save some memory, save some space. Otherwise, we'll just go to the next article here. Let's give it three seconds. Three, two, one. All right. What are we looking at here? We'll just skip to this one. We'll wait for that one to load. It's probably not that important. But this is the Diplomat, an Asia-Pacific publication. Does the Belt and Road have a future in Taliban-ruled Afghanistan? So again, we're talking about the Belt and Road here in relation to Afghanistan. The Taliban will welcome the hard infrastructure elements of the BRI. The soft components are a different story. So, yep, China is going to be making moves here. This is another article you could read. We already went through this a good bit, so we may just skip this. Let's just go through to see if there's anything here. But for China, stability in Afghanistan is also a prerequisite for the development and success of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, a major segment of the Belt and Road Initiative. In Pakistan, China has been investing billions of dollars, billions of U.S. dollars, in the construction of roads, special economic zones, and ports. But due to the geographic conditions and tensions with India and Kashmir, the Chinese city of Kashgar is still hardly connected with the corridor, and projects face delays. So we'll see how that's resolved. And it is interesting how China is investing a lot of their U.S. dollars into this stuff. They're not saving their dollars. Like, they're trying to spend these dollars to build infrastructure, not only outside China, in the form of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, but in the building of these ghost cities. Like, surely you've seen these ghost cities before where they're just building, like, you know, plazas and marketplaces and residential real estate and commercial real estate complexes and skyscrapers and everything like this, and nobody's doing business in them, nobody's living in them. And so people are like, what are these crazy people doing? Well, one, they want to keep people working so as to prevent a revolt, but two, they want to spend the U.S. dollars while they still have value, while it's still fiat crap, and get something that they could use later for their money. So that's probably one thing they're thinking about. In southern Pakistan, China is developing the port of Gwadar, which is to become a major hub for energy. And mind you, Pakistan does not like the United States, so this is just another win for China. However, to be profitable, the new port needs to be ser needs to serve as a terminal for natural gas from Central Asia through Afghanistan. So again, the importance of Afghanistan coming into play. But transportation by routes or pipelines could not be planned in this war-torn country. With the Pax Talibana in Afghanistan, both China and Pakistan can envisage new infrastructure facilities that may connect Gwadar to Central Asia. Once those networks are built, Gwadar will also become much more attractive to foreign investors, especially from the Gulf region, as they have until now shown some reluctance to invest in Gwadar because of lack of prospects. Good relations between Pakistan and the Taliban may improve the security environment for Chinese construction projects. And this talks about the issues with 
establishing like healthcare and uh, things like that. Schools, uh, that's probably not going to happen. Civil rights, at least as seen by China. So there's some stuff here you could look into. There's probably some stuff I'm skimming over here that's important, but I just... Yeah, so you can read into that. And so now we're going to talk a little bit about Nord Stream. We're going to talk about some Gazprom pipelines. And as you guys have seen through my tweets, I believe Gazprom is probably the best oil play. Again, not financial advice. None of this is financial advice. But Gazprom is going to have a great future. And it's pretty cheap right now, in my opinion. And they're going to be very integral to building pipelines, which is going to connect China and Asia to Europe. And Europe is quite excited about having a lot of this gas come from Russia and from Iran. And one of the only reasons they've been a little bit hesitant to move forward on a lot of these projects is because of pressure from the United States, which still has a lot of leverage over Europe. A lot of the European states are kind of like vassal states to the United States, but that's increasingly less the case. But let's take a look at some of these pipelines. So the power of Siberia, the largest gas transmission system in Russia's east. And if you look at this, this is going to be connecting China and Russia. Right. So it supplies gas in Russia's far east and China. So look at this here. And look at these other pipelines that they've got laid down. 38 billion cubic meters per year. And also to note, Gazprom is, I think, half owned by the Russian government. So it's not like they're going to fail. And it's not like the Russian government is going to implement a whole lot of crazy environmentalist restrictions on Gazprom. Because the Russian government relies a lot on oil sales uh, for revenues. And just an interesting thing of note... If you look into a lot of the environmentalist movements in the United States, you'll actually find, if you dig deep enough, a lot of uh, you'll find a lot of Arabian and Russian money. Now, why is that? Why would you find Arabian and Russian money in American environmentalist movements? Well, because if they can spur these environmentalist movements to get power into Congress and to get power. Uh, as stakeholders in the United States, and they can encourage more costly regulation to be established for American oil companies, well, that takes a lot of market share from Americans and gives it to Russia and Arabians. Um, man, I need some coffee, but I want to pause this video. I don't know how to edit videos, really, so I just go off the bat. None of this is edited. But... Uh, yeah, we're going to skip through this a little bit. I need to go to the bathroom too. But, yeah, a lot of that stuff is funded by people who want a bigger oil market share. And so they're going to make it harder for American oil companies and Western oil companies in general to uh, get oil out of the ground and get it to market. Either that or they'll just make it prohibitively more expensive to do so. And because they have these barriers of entry, which... 
no small oil company or firm could possibly comply with as a startup. That's why we don't have any startup oil companies here in the United States. It's like we've got the big ones. You know, we've got BP, we've got Royal Dutch Shell, which is British, and then uh, or no, British Petroleum is British too. Uh, I'm talking about Chevron, uh, Phillips, Conoco. Uh, yeah, they're going to make it harder and harder and harder for them to get the oil out of ground. That's going to be great for Russia. And Russia doesn't really deal with all that stuff. So another reason to check out Gazprom and some of the other companies in that region. Saudi Ramco, that might be another consideration too. So yeah, Russia gas going to China. That's what I want to note there. Nordstrom too, this is one of the big ones. And you may have heard about this in the news uh, especially with Trump. Trump did not want this Nord Stream 2 pipeline built because he understood what that meant. If you've got gas and energy, which is integral to the functioning of any civilization and society, moving in to Europe, well, that grants leverage to Russia over Europe. And so Trump didn't want that to happen. That has implications for geopolitics. And yeah, Biden just kind of let it happen. So good for Gazprom. Bad for the geopolitical status of the United States. So, you guys could read that. Three, three preoccupations of states are intricately interwined within the realm of international relations as pertaining to the relative positions, interactions, and capabilities of state actors and to an extent non-state actors as well. Security, as most scholars would agree, is perhaps the most critical goal for states, and energy acquisition plays a particularly critical role here because it enables the other two preoccupations, physical survival and economic development. Right, so whoever supplies the oil, whoever supplies that key integral resource uh, is going to have a lot of power. Geographical location dictates resource availability and the costs, economic and political, of energy procurement. Right, and we have a lot of resources here in the United States, a lot, especially in Alaska. But our leaders are not making it easy on us to get it out of the ground and to get these resources to become self-reliant. You know, we cut off that uh, Keystone Pipeline. We stop that from functioning, which costs us a lot of jobs, which costs us a lot of uh, freedom, independence, and leverage on the global economy. And... A funny story came out recently that because gas prices were going up, Biden had to go to a lot of these other countries and say, hey, you got to up your game. You got to produce more gas. You got to produce more gas so that you could uh, have more supply come to market and lower the oil price because inflation doesn't make them look good. A lot of people are angry about high gas prices, stuff like this. Well, that wouldn't be a problem if we had the Keystone Pipeline and we were able to pump more oil. But... He's not making it easier to get it out of the ground. He's not making it uh, so that we could be oil independent and have all these very sticky relationships with countries in the Middle East for this stuff. And so that's kind of what he had to do. So, you know, clown world stuff. This essay examines some recent global tendencies in the geopolitics of energy security, particularly in, the relation, uh, in relation to Russia-EU Nord Stream 2 project. And as far as I'm concerned, Nord Stream 2 is finished. Uh, it's soon to be operational, if it isn't already. 
Yeah, so they're going to be testing it here soon. And this has been long in the making. The preparatory work for the project started in 1997. Yeah, so this has been going on for quite a while. Nord Stream is a natural gas pipeline that serves as gas transportation uh, for the Russian Federation to Germany. So, yep. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline will transport natural gas into the European Union to enhance security of supply, support climate goals, and strengthen the internal energy market. And guys, as much environmentalist stuff that comes out, oil is going to be a play. It's always going to be a play. And a lot of people are scared out of investing in the oil market right now. But dude, <laughs> like there's never been a better time to invest in this stuff, seriously. I mean, I wish I bought some of these oil companies back in March 2020. Like, do you guys remember? This might have been in May 2020, but do you guys remember when oil went negative? The price of oil went negative? Like, there was so little demand for oil because they had locked down the economy globally that you just had all of these nations continuing to produce it because their economies are reliant on oil. And so when you shut down other economies which rely on the oil that come from these other economies, these other economies shut down just because they have nobody to sell their products to. And so that has huge implications. They have to keep pumping. And you can't just like stop oil operations in most cases. You have to keep going because to stop, that would you know, implicate a bunch of costs later down the road when you have to start back up. And so it's cheaper to just continue to pump it and keep it going. But anyways, you had a lot of these tankers which couldn't hold any more oil. And so uh, they ran out of places to put it. They ran out of storage. The reserves were full. And so they started to literally pay people to take the oil. And so uh, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, the world's over. I'm not going to invest in oil. It's done. It's over. I should have done it because, God, these oil companies have just done absolutely fantastic ever since then. The entire economy has really ever since they printed, like, what, the $10 trillion, right? But... Woulda, coulda, shoulda. I still think it's a great play. So, yet central, it, not financial advice, again. Yet central and eastern European countries, such as Poland, regard the project with great suspicion, citing many concerns, including intelligence and military threats, energy security of the region and the whole EU, and challenges to the unity and solidarity of the EU, especially with respect to its future foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. All right, so that was the main issue. As you can see... Now that gas pipelines play a huge role in geopolitics and the relations of their of their in the relations thereof, I gotta end this video soon. I've done like three hours of content today. Uh, you can sort of get a better grasp as to what actually happens behind the scenes, why it is that there are certain foreign policy initiatives, why it is that certain conflicts break out. Why does certain parties fund certain sides of certain conflicts? A lot of it has to do with oil. And a lot of it has to do with not just oil. And a lot of people just think that's about money. It's not just about money. It's about energy security, which is essentially about national security, right? So those are things to consider. And, yeah, you could look into the history of this. This talks a little bit about Trump trying to shut down 
the pipeline with sanctions and massive pressure on Germany. So, yeah, you can dig into that. The Biden administration recently waived the Trump sanctions, clearing the way for the completion of the pipeline. Right. So why did he do that? Why did he do what he did in Afghanistan? Why is China benefiting so much and Russia benefiting so much from this administration? You could argue and say, well, it could be just everything's winding down. This is where the momentum is going, just based on everything that's happened over the last 20 years, internal conflicts, internal division, the weakness of the United States in general. Yeah, I get that, but uh, I mean, he's just giving them the game, you know? So, not that I care really. Uh, you know, again, I'm not political. I mean, politics is just out of my wheelhouse now. I don't care. But, uh, you know, these are just observations. Let me know what you guys think. The Biden White House is seeking to rebuild ties with Germany after their deterioration under the previous administration. Well, why they deteriorate? What, because we asked Germany and some of these other countries, which paid almost nothing for the military defense uh, that NATO provided for them? We asked them to pay more money? And we we pay like 90% of all the bills of NATO. Like all these other countries don't pay anything. We should be out of NATO if you want to know the truth. I don't think we should be part of NATO. And I thought it was great when Trump wanted to pull us out of the WTO. He wanted to pull us out of NATO. I thought all that was just absolutely fantastic. Because we got to pull back. we got to resource industry back to the United States. We've got to focus on our own security in the United States because... Our security problems are not thousands of miles away. They're, like, on our border, essentially. Like, how are you supposed to have a foreign policy when you don't even have any domestic policy to enforce your own internal security? It's just basic stuff, guys. It's not even political. I'm not trying to be political here. I'm just trying to give you concepts and understandings as to how a country is supposed to be freaking run, okay? Like, you can't just, like... Okay, anyway. Anyway, anyway, not to get worked up. So, yeah, you could read more about that, talking about Ukraine, the START Treaty, and all that stuff. So, that is a lot to get into. A couple more articles here. Uh, we'll skip through these a little bit. How long have we gone on? Hour and 30 minutes. Okay, so we'll probably look at two hours here. Thank you for staying with me for so long. I hope that you guys have gotten value from this. Again, if you have, like the video, share the video, subscribe. Check out the social media links. Donate. We would love to see the channel grow. Donation links are in the comments. We've got different addresses for crypto. If you want to join me on Patreon, you can get different benefits there. We always love to push that stuff out there. Uh, China, Iran Pact pays way for alternative to Suez. Uh, so, the extraordinary confluence between the signing of the Iran-China strategic partnership deal and the ever-given saga in the Suez Canal is bound to fuel a renewed drive to the Belt and Road Initiative and all the interconnected corridors of Eurasia integration. This is the most important geopolitical uh, development in Southwest Asia in a long time, even more critical than the geopolitical and military support to Damascus by Russia since 2015. All right, and we'll get to that in a later article. Why does Russia want to intervene there? Well, one, because Syria is to some degree a Christian nation, longtime ally, and it's on their doorstep, and they want to ensure, yeah, ensure security. Damn it, I wish I could pause the video and get coffee. Wait, can I do that? Hold on. 
Can I? No, I don't think there's a pause button. I'm not good at this stuff, guys. Uh, back to the article. Multiple overland railway corridors across Eurasia featuring cargo trains crammed with fright. The most iconic of which is arguably Chongqing, whatever, are a key plank of Belt and Road. After a few years, this will be all conducted on high-speed rail. So they're building rail, they're building pipelines, they're building canals. Uh, the Iran-China strategic connection is bound to accelerate all interconnected corridors, leading to crisscrossing Southwest Asia. Crucially, oh, let's read this. The key overland corridor is Xinjiang, Kazakhstan, and then onward to Russia and beyond. Another route traverses Central Asia and Iran, all the way to Turkey, the Balkans, and Eastern Europe. It may take time in terms of volume to compete with maritime routes, but the substantial reduction in shipping time is already propelling a massive cargo surge. So it's a lot faster to send stuff on land than on sea. And so if you have high-speed rail, I mean, that's going to be much faster than just shipping stuff by sea, right? Crucially, Multiple belt and road trade connectivity corridors are directly linked to establishing alternatives to oil and gas transit routes controlled or supervised by the hegemon since 1945. Uh, right. So, talking more about pipelines here. Back to the facts on the ground. The most interesting short-term development is how Iran's oil and gas may be shipped to Xinjiang, China via the Caspian Sea in Kazakhstan using to using a to-be-built Trans-Caspian pipeline, so more pipeline activity. That falls right in the classic Belt and Road territory. Actually, more than that, because Kazakhstan is a partner not only of Belt and Road, but also of the Russia-led Eurasia Economic Union. And also in Kazakhstan, guys, you have massive, massive, massive uranium deposits there. I forgot what the main company was, but if you figure that out, and you can get exposure to that through different uranium ETFs, like URNM is a relatively new one that come on, that has come on the scene, and you can get exposure to Kazakhstan uranium, which is going to be a play. It's a great play. Not investment advice, just talking to myself here. Um, uranium is going to be huge, and a lot of that's going to come from Kazakhstan and uh yeah, there's some interesting things to look into there. Uh, what's the company? I just want to look this up real quick. Kazakhstan. Botch that one. Uh, uranium company. Uh, what is it? What is it? What is it? Uranium One Holdings. Kazataprom. That's what I'm thinking of. That might be interesting to look into. Kazataprom. I think oil's going to be good. Uranium is going to be good. From Beijing's point of view, Iran is also absolutely essential for the development of a land corridor from the Persian Gulf to the Black Sea and beyond to Europe via the Danube. It is obviously no accident that the hegemon is on high alert in all points of this trade corridor via maximum pressure, sanctions, and hybrid war against Iran and attempt <clears throat> an attempt to manipulate 
the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, the post-color revolution environment in both Georgia and Ukraine, which bordered the Black Sea and NATO's overreaching shadow over the Balkans. So here's more stuff to uh, read into here. This talks a little bit more about Afghanistan. If you look at this, you can sort of understand how many things are going through Afghanistan. Look at that. And what are what's on here? Uh, oh, oh. I'm trying to understand what. So I guess those are pipelines. I guess those are high-speed rail. Uh, yeah. See, so you've got some stuff there. Uh, yeah, pipelines. Now, the Afghan government sees the ambitious 21st century remix departing from Harat. Now, this is a little bit old. I'm not sure what their take would be now because I think this was before the current events. So this is also another interesting thing. Russia, Iran, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and Tur Turkmenistan signed the Convention on the Legal Status of the Caspian Sea in 2018 in the Kazakh port of Akto. What's interesting is that their major issues are now discussed at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Oh, so that's the SEO. Okay, so I'll see if I can make a note earlier in the video. Again, I'm not good at video editing, um, but we'll see if that could happen where Russia and Kazakhstan are full members. Iran will soon be. Azerbaijan is a dialogue partner, and Turkmenistan is a permanent guest. Okay, so that's the growth of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Integrates you into the Belt and Road. Uh, so, in SEO terms, Shanghai Cooperation Organization terms, that will increase Russian trade with India via Iran, as well as offering an extra corridor for China to trade with Europe. So, there's a lot we could go into here. We could go forever talking about the connections going on in Iran and broader Asia and Europe. Yeah, so that's more stuff on Iran. Joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This talks about pipelines to be built. And then in Syria, again, some of this great info and intel is from Pepe Escobar. Uh, and this is just talking about the pipelines that we're being fought over. So Syria is an energy war with the heart of the matter featuring a vicious geopolitical competition between two proposed gas pipelines. It is the ultimate pipelinistan war. So yeah, you guys can dig into all that. I I'm kind of tired and I don't want to talk about this anymore. But I hope that you found interest here. I hope that you found some value. Uh, I know I learned a couple new things. And, yeah, I'd love to hear y'all's comments. I'd love to hear what you guys think about all that. I uh, went through a lot here. Uh, and if you guys could connect other dots, if you guys could piece some other pieces of the puzzle together as to what's going on over there, that'd be wonderful because I think what is going on over there is going to be the new century. I think they're building uh, the new economic system. And a lot of that, I think, is probably going to be integrated into the global financial system that is being rolled out through artificial intelligence, blockchain, AI. I imagine VeChain is going to have big deals to be made with what is going on over there. If you haven't looked into VeChain, VeChain is a crypto that is associated with uh, supply chains. And so given that 
is run by somebody named Jim Breyer, who has great uh, connections with China and uh, uh, the United States and a lot of other people. I mean, this guy is a total globalista. He could be making many, many deals uh, in order to push crypto and blockchain into this new infrastructure. So that's going to be interesting to see. Filecoin, I think, is another one to maybe uh, look at. I'm not invested in these, just so you know. I don't have exposure to these because these coins are the enemy. And I know some people take a different perspective, but, uh, you know, maybe it'd be a good idea to pick up a little bag. I don't know. I don't know. Tell me what you guys think. But, yeah, I'm tired. I'm tired. I want to go out and hike and enjoy the beautiful day. I wish I could shift the camera and show you. Maybe you could see the sun radiating in. It's calling me. It's calling me out. The Rain Man needs to be shown the sunlight. So, yeah, that is all for today, guys. I hope that you got value again. This is Manero Mateo. Uh, subscribe, like, share the content. Join us on social media. We've got the links below, Telegram, Patreon, uh, Gab, Twitter, Odyssey especially. And that's it. That is it. I'm working on more interviews. I'm working on more things in the mix, research reports for Daryl and Pirate Chain. And yeah, again, leave comments. Love you guys a lot. God bless. We'll see you next time.